welcome. It is the Lord's Day. I trust the Lord will encourage your hearts on this, the day, that he rose and promises to give us life eternally. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Acts? If you're visiting this morning, this is part of an ongoing series, and we are in Acts chapter 20 this morning. You'll find the book of Acts in the New Testament just after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts. As you turn there, if I would please be permitted just to say a brief word of thank you to the congregation. Um, myself and my family are new to Parksville. We've only moved here recently. And uh, it has been a time of uh, tremendous change and transition. Uh, most of you that live here have moved here also, and so you know uh, the things that you go through. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not just so much a move for us, but a tremendous change. For us and we have felt a generosity of spirit of the people here towards us that we are very grateful for and that we don't take for granted and so I would like to just personally uh, pass on that word of appreciation to you I'm going to in a moment uh, read Acts chapter 20 verses 1 through 16 I would like to introduce the text to you so that you have some understanding of it, uh, even before I read it. We come to a transition here in the book of Acts, in the recording of Luke, Luke's recording of the Apostle Paul. And the transition is one where Paul is described in the ministry of proclamation, which is the concern for the salvation of souls. A transition into the ministry of encouragement. Encouragement is the concern for the preservation of those same souls, for the continuation of those same souls in the gospel that they have heard. It's a reminder that the gospel is not only about the making of Christians, but also the preservation of Christians, not only coming to faith, but also continuing in faith. And so you will notice as I read the text in a moment that the word encouragement is used over and over. It is a a tour of encouragement that Paul goes on through the cities of Macedonia. I would also like to point out just the uniqueness of how Luke tells the story of Paul's journeys. As I read the story myself, I I'm struck by, not so much by what Luke says, but, but by what Luke does not say. We know from reading further on in the Bible where Paul corresponds with the churches that he is now visiting that there is an awful lot going on in the life of the Apostle Paul, almost none of which Luke chooses to include in his narrative. For example, if you were to read through the book of 2 Corinthians and the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians, you will see a long list, just a a, a litany of all of the things that is going on in the Apostle Paul's life, that he's facing hardships, he's facing facing shipwreck, he's facing danger from, from all different kinds of places, he's being stoned, he's being whipped, he's being left for dead. All of these different things are going on in the, in, in the life of the Apostle Paul. And it's tempting to try to take all of those things in that you know is going on 
on, as he's going on this journey, he's busy writing letters. He wrote the book, that second book of Corinthians to uh, Corinth at this time the, of this journey. He also wrote the book of Romans while he is on this journey. And you wonder, why didn't Luke get into all the juicy stuff and, and, and tell all of the stuff that was going on in the Apostle Paul's life? And it, it forces us to stand back and ask, why does Luke narrate the story the way that he does? And it's important to understand not only about this passage, but about the whole book of Acts, that, that Luke is not telling a story where the main character is Paul. Paul is a very significant character, but the most important character in Luke's eyes is Christ himself. And what Luke's concern is for is not to tell all the juicy details, maybe the kind of details that would make it more of a bestseller today, but to, but to connect the life of the Apostle Paul clearly, unmistakably, with the life of Christ. Because that is the significance of Paul. Not that he did all of these great things, or not that he was a miracle worker, but that Paul, Paul's miracles represented that we do not have an absent Lord, that even though he's not on earth, that the ministry of Christ, just as he was on earth, is continuing in his absence. It's all about Christ. And so as I read the story, you'll recognize that Luke clearly tells the stories and pulls the details together in a way that very closely resembles, in fact, the earthly ministry of Christ. There is, there is Christ and now there is Paul also who is connected to Christ. And so he's traveling. And that's exactly what Christ did. He never stayed in one place. He went from, from place to place to place. And as Paul travels, you'll see that, that he has the dispossessed uh, gathered about him, also in the same way that Christ, when he traveled, he possessed the people who were normally outcast, people who were on the outside. And so also Paul has these dispossessed people uh, drawn to him and traveling with him as he goes. And as they travel, just as Christ also did, uh, Luke describes that Paul has his sights set on Jerusalem. That is where he wants to go. And also there is a resurrection story at the last part of the narrative that I will read. And of course, that is also uh, how the life of our, the earthly life of our Lord also ended uh, was with the resurrection. So just want to, to point out those, those details of the narrative uh, before I begin Luke chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, there it is, the first word, after not, not threatening them, <laughs> but encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. I hope in your mind's eye you can kind of picture what Paul's doing. He's leaving Ephesus. If you've ever been in that part of the world or looked at a map, you know he's going north, away from what is modern-day Syria or Turkey, and up into Europe, into modern-day Greece. When he'd gone through those regions, he had given them much encouragement. There's that word again, much encouragement, not just a little, but much. And he came to Greece. There he spent three months, probably in Corinth. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews... This is also another parallel to the life of Christ, isn't it? As he traveled, uh, being despised by the Jews and threatened by the Jews. A plot was made by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, and he decided to return through Macedonia. And Paul wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Passover, and the quickest way to get to Jerusalem was by boat from Corinth, and he probably got wind of, of a plan that was afoot to get rid of Paul on that boat. That boat would have been filled with Jews, 
uh, worshiping Jews on their way to Jerusalem for the season of worship. And it would have been a very effective and a convenient way for a man to get lost overboard and for nobody ever to figure out whatever happened to that person anyway. And Paul uh, got wind of that and so uh, did not get on the boat and decided to go back through Macedonia by land. Verse 4, this is a, a description of the group of people that Luke describes with Paul, which I believe is drawn to make a picture of unity, which I will draw out in a few minutes. Sopator of Berea, the son of Pirith from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, verse 7, this is the first clear, not necessarily the absolute first, I think the book of John makes some references as well after the resurrection, but the first clear reference to the pattern of the New Testament church that had begun to meet for worship, not on Saturday, but on Sunday, on the first day of the week, which we now call, and the Apostle John later called, the Lord's Day. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, probably a reference to the Lord's table, why else would you get together other than to have fellowship and break bread? Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Not hurt, not unconscious, dead. We'll take Luke has a physician's word for that. Verse 10, But Paul went down and bent over him, just like Elijah and Elisha, and of course Christ himself did of old. Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed, and they took the youth away alive. And it says they were not a little comforted. Same word, encouraged. Not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he had met us at Asos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day, opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. That is the word of the Lord. I trust he will make us both attentive and understanding of it this morning. This is what I would like you to take home this morning. If you don't get anything else this morning, I would like you to get this. 
It's not intellectual. It's not complicated. It's not very profound. But I would like you to make sure that you get this. That as Christians, we need both the salvation that comes from Christ and also the encouragement that is found in Christ. We need both of those things, the salvation as well as the encouragement that comes from Christ. Salvation brings such a radical change, a radical alteration to our life that we need constant encouragement that we would not resort to our defaults. Encouragement isn't something that is only for weak Christians. It is for thriving Christians. And the kind of encouragement that we need is not the simply the encouragement that, that gets us through the day. The kind of encouragement we need is the encouragement that gets us through life. It's not just encouragement to be able to get to bed at night, but it's encouragement to be able to get to heaven. And that is the reason for this tour. That is the reason for Paul's concern, is what he is a minister of, as Luke describes him, an encouragement of the Lord. And it is something that all of us have need of. Paul recognized that in receiving the gospel, believers, every believers, but particularly dramatically the Gentiles, have been given have been given a completely new identity. Not only a new identity, but also a completely new destination. That new identity is that they belong. He tells the Romans in Romans chapter 1, he says that you have been included and called to belong in Jesus Christ. That is their new identity. He tells also the Gentile church in Galatians chapter 3, he says that you now belong. You no longer have to submit to all of the rites and rituals that people are putting upon you, that you through faith now are included in the very same covenant of Abraham as the Jewish people have been covenant of promise. You are included. That is your new identity. And also, you not only have a new identity, you also have a new destination. And that destination is one of hope. One of my favorite examples of this in the book of Acts is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And the preaching of Philip to this man. Here is a man who traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. And we know that when he got to Jerusalem, this is how he would have been treated. 
He would have been treated as a person who is kept on the outside, a person who was told to worship from afar, that in spite of all of his devoutness, in spite of all of his desire to worship, that his identity was a person who was on the outside. And he's leaving Jerusalem, having experienced that that form of uh, exclusion. And the Spirit takes Philip out into the wilderness and, and, and takes him up into the chariot and preaches the gospel to him. And the Ethiopian says this, what is keeping me from being baptized? Baptism, the ultimate symbol, that, that, that visible word that God gives us that says, you are now included. Imagine, isn't that great? And Philip says, yeah, I'll baptize you. You are now included. Everything's different. Everything's changed. But Paul also knew that he was waging war for every soul. Every soul that embraces that new identity, every soul that embraces that new destination, that they continue in it. That they be encouraged. That there would be perseverance in that new identity and in that newfound destination. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are not ignorant of Satan's designs, I think what he means by that is that we can become so inundated and consumed with the material that we lose sight of the immaterial. And that is Satan's design for us, to where Paul says we're not thwarted by that. And we lose perspective. We lose perspective on who we really are. And we lose perspective on where we are really going. We lose perspective on what our new identity is. Just forgiven by Christ. Called and included as the children of God. That nothing can ever take it away from us. And we lose perspective on where we are really going. And we're not to live merely for the things of this world. We don't need a bucket list. We're going to heaven. We're going to a place of eternal glory. And so there is a serious concern for the Apostle Paul. There's that litany of things that the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, all of these things that I've experienced, the stonings, the, the, the being left for dead, the danger from here, the danger from there, all of those things. And you know what the final things he says is? He says, in addition to all of this, plus all of that stuff, I also bear anxiety. I bear the weight for the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is by definition, by, by, by nature, one who is one who is encouraging the church to continue in their new identity and in their new destination. Because the identity of the world is very deeply ingrained in us. When we come to faith. I like the words of C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Letters where he describes the conversation between two demons and the one demon is despairing because one of his patients has come to faith in Christ. So in the demon's world, that is a failure. And I like these words where the superior demon tries to encourage the younger demon by saying this, that there's no need to despair. Hundreds of adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, 
And then he gives a reason for that. He says, because all of the habits of the patient, all of the habits, both mentally and bodily, are still in our favor. You see, when, when, I like that because it, it, it fits. It, it describes an experience that I have also had, that even though I've come to faith in Christ, even though I, I, I have been given a new identity and a new destination, the habits are still strong. And the identity is still strong. And I need encouragement. So in the ministry of encouragement, Paul is just as much a minister of Christ as he is in his proclamation of Christ. Because it is Christ's own disposition to encourage us as it should be the disposition of every minister of Christ to encourage. That's why I love a passage that was read earlier from Isaiah chapter 42 because it tells me something of the nature of my Lord towards me. Ever felt like a bruised reed? Or a a wick that's not flaming, but a wick that is smoldering? And you wonder what... What is the disposition of my Lord? Such words of encouragement, such words of comfort. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A bruised reed he will not break off. If you've never seen the old Puritan work by Richard Sibbs called The Bruised Reed, I'd encourage you to pick it up and read it. A tremendous book of encouragement describing the disposition of our Lord as one who is to encourage us. So also it is the true ministers of Christ. Sometimes you would think that by the way that we are handled by religion and by religious services, that what the Apostle Paul had really told the Thessalonians when he's talking about the day of the Lord and the the, the fact that the Lord will come, you would think that the Apostle Paul Uh, had told them, threaten one another with these words. You feel that way sometimes. That that is how the gospel is handled. That's how we feel when we're involved with the people of God. We feel like we have this mandate to to, to threaten one another. And like we've done our job if people are feeling weighed down. And a burden is placed upon them. There is no perverse joy in heaven that delights in using discipleship as a burdensome, sour pill. I love Christ's words to Peter in the Gospel of Luke. So encouraging, again, of Christ's disposition towards us. Peter, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that you would not fail. And when you are restored comfort others. You know what Jesus is talking about? Jesus is talking about the fact that he would be denied by Peter three times. And he knew that Satan would come along and would try to sift him with that. Such a dramatic illustration of the experience that Christians have. And the words of comfort to Peter. Christ's words of comfort, of encouragement pray for you. You'll not fail. Encourage, comfort others. Note verse 7, that the 
encouragement is not only Christ's disposition, but that, and I believe this is significant, that Christ has given us a day, a day for encouragement. It's called the Lord's Day. We know this was picked up by the church and the first day of the week was called the Lord's Day. I read from Revelation chapter 7 where John says that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. God help us to be anywhere else on the Lord's Day. And then perhaps the most powerful word of encouragement of, of the entire Scriptures And a good example of a book that, again, often is picked up and used to threaten people with when it is designed and given, given on the Lord's Day by a Lord whose disposition it was to encourage a church that was weak, a church that was like a smoldering wick, that needed encouragement, and they received the vision of the Lord, saying, I am very great. The beast may look very great to you from your perspective, and he may be able to imitate me in many things that impresses you, But don't follow the beast because I am the true one who holds the keys to death and Hades. A tremendous book of encouragement, the book of Revelation is. And John says that it was on the Lord's day that he received it. And the whole, even me mentioning the phrase, the Lord's day, will make some of you uncomfortable. Because it smacks in your experience of something that has to do with a legalistic duty, a pharisaical external observance of a day, things that you were remember that are, are not positive experiences or memories in your own life. Because it's Sunday. We have to be sour today. We have to go get our burden put upon us. The minister has to do his job. He has to make us unhappy. One of my favorite preachers is a man named Sinclair Ferguson, who's a Scottish theologian. I enjoy his preaching very much. And I think it was on that text in Revelation 1.10 on the Lord's Day where he tells a story of a memory that he had of worshiping on the Lord's Day in Scotland as a young man and attending the services of the Lord with God's people. was so encouraged by the service, found such uh, help and was so uplifted by the reading of God's word and the the right preaching of God's word that he left and found himself whistling as he left the the, the church property. And he felt the the hand of an elder on his shoulder that says, "Ah, Sinclair, you know I ought to be whistling on the Lord's Day. (laughs) Forgive the bad accent. And so it's right for us to be a little cynical. It's right for us to be a little skeptical of a pharisaical, uh, legalistic observance of something where people are proud of their duty. But the cynicism has often led in, in people's lives to a rejection of the whole embracing of the Lord's Day as an instrument of the Lord in our lives to encourage us. 
And it's not about duties. It's not about having a list of things that you can or can't do on this day. It's about living a life of faith. It's about embracing the Lord. It's about a Christian life that isn't driven by guilt, but a Christian life that is driven by conviction. And that's what the Lord's Day is. It's a, it's an instrument. You see, encouragement isn't a pixie dust. It's not magic. It doesn't just settle on us because we call our, ourselves Christians. There are instruments. There are means that the Lord uses that are in our life that we must have access to that encourage us. And I would by no means suggest that the Lord's Day is the only one. Not at all. Not in any way. I hope that you have many ways through the week that, that you find encouragement through good reading, listening to sermons, fellowship with friends. But, but when this description of gathering together to break bread, and listening to the preaching of God's word and experiencing the resurrection story. Let me just in a nutshell, in a nutshell, just briefly explain. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Just briefly explain what the Lord's Day is all about how it can function uh, as an instrument of encouragement for you, not only to remind us of our identity, again, anew, because the identity of the world is so deeply ingrained in us, to remind us of our new destination, because we're, we're surrounded by people all week long who know nothing of the destination of heaven and the hope that we have. But that worshiping on the first day of the week Think of it in these terms, that instead of beginning the week with our own work, that we begin the week with His work. So that in all of our work, we would be resting in His work. That we would know that before our work ever begins, we would know that Work is done in our behalf and that all things are accomplished for us before our work even begins. And then when our work does begin, that it would begin completely infused and characterized by the work of whom we rest in. That we would work Christ-like in all that we do. And then the resurrection story. What a fantastic story. What a privilege for Eutychus to have his name recorded in the, the words of Scripture for us to read. And I confess I get really annoyed with people who use this text as nothing more than a segue into silly stories about preachers who preach too long and about people who sleep through church. That's not the point of the text. Yes, Paul, it says, he went on and he preached until midnight. Paul knew that he would never see these people again. Let me ask you, if tonight you had family with you, and that family was in need of your encouragement, you felt that your relationship with them was vital in order for, order for them to continue, in order for them to be encouraged, and in order for them to be strong. And you knew that tonight was the last night that you would have and that you would never see them again. Tell me, would you care about sleep tonight? Would you, wouldn't you say, well, you know what? I've got all week. I can sleep any other time I want. I'm not going to sleep tonight. These people need my encouragement. And then it's like the Lord says, yes, you're right, Paul, these people need encouragement. But you know what? You can preach till you're blue in the face and there's nothing that will encourage them more than what I'm going to do. 
when a young boy falls out of the window and Paul goes down to pick up a dead boy alive. And it says they were not a little encouraged. Yes. Because Eutychus' story, his inclusion in this story, is not simply something for us to muse about or to, 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 to snicker at. It is a picture of what all of us need in encouragement. Nothing short of the very life of God in us. To be picked up dead, yes. But to be made alive in Christ. That's what the Lord's Day is for. Nothing short of, of experiencing again, anew, afresh, the reality of the life of Christ, of the newness of the work of the Spirit that, that comes to us from heaven, that we would be healed of our deadness. Is what Eutychus' resurrection is a picture of. And Luke says they were not a little encouraged. Yes, because that is what our Lord does. Not only does He have the disposition to encourage us, but He has the substance to encourage us. Holding the keys of death and Hades. And so we need renewal. That is what the Lord's Day is for. We need to be renewed. And there, there, are, there is no believer, there is no Christian who can say, I am strong. I do not need the instrument of encouragement in my life. We all, each one, need renewal. We need encouragement. We need revival. It's not just for a certain sect of the Pentecostalism or, or of uh, for four Pentecostals in Protestantism. It's for all of us. Not revivalism, but revival. Revival of our hearts. And finally, I believe that in Luke's narrative of the story, it is told in such a way to emphasize that in this tour of encouragement, as Paul travels as a minister of Christ to encourage the churches, as he's weighed by his concern for them, it's evidenced by unity. Unity, you see that in verses 4 and 5. You see social stratas coming down. You notice the names that I read. One is called Aristarchus. Just imagine what kind of family he was from. Slaves don't name their children Aristarchus. Probably from an aristocracy. The name of the companion that he's with is called Secondus. Princes from high families don't name their children Secondus. That was the name that was given to slaves. Slaves that were not first slave in the house, but slaves who were second slave in the house. And so Luke is telling a story, a narrative that has seen uh, social barriers, social structures broken down. Not only that, but also the different regions that are described and the kind of, of pride that people have of regions saying, I'm from one city or I'm from another city. All of the cities were represented in a, in a show of unity traveling with the Apostle Paul. But probably the greatest display of unity in what Luke describes is the fact that, that these Gentile believers were traveling with this Jew, 
at the same time experience hatred and enmity from the Jews all around them, they are protecting this Jewish missionary as he travels to Jerusalem. And not only are they protecting him, but they're protecting him for a reason. He is carrying money. And the offering that this Gentile church is, is collecting is going to Jerusalem to help the church, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Why was the church in Jerusalem without any money? Because they gave their money, they all gave their money away at Pentecost in order that there could be a mission to the Gentiles. Clearly described earlier in the book of Acts. And then the Gentiles are coming to faith and in this tremendous display of unity and overcoming ethnicity boundaries, they collect an offering and send it back to Jerusalem to help the Jews who are suffering. Encouragement in our life is evidenced by the reality of unity. I can't see from the Scriptures that it is possible for people to claim on the one hand that they are encouraged by Christ, that they are receiving Christ's ministry of encouragement. In other words, they are renewed. They are experiencing revival and renewal in their lives constantly from Christ. And then at the same time, on the other hand, live in isolation and alienation from brothers and sisters in Christ. It sounds harsh, but it's just the radical nature of the transformation of the gospel, that that identity, that destination is something that is given to one people. I hope it makes sense to you that the same Lord who saves us by reconciling us to God also encourages us by reconciling us to one another. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense to me. But I also know that it's not easy. You ever pray for patience and find that the Lord tests you on it? Look at a church that prays for unity and see if the Lord tests you on it. Unity is the real self-conscious work of being reconciled to people who in our natural flesh would have nothing to do with. They're not like us. Or we don't like for some reason. Listen to the difference in these words. It's significant because I have found this in my own life. I have been deluded into thinking that I love people who I'm not actually united with. Hey, I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, do you have anything to do with them? Can you share your goods with them? Can you even talk to them? And so listen to the difference between these two statements. I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ. It sounds good, right? Listen to this. I am united to all my brothers and sisters in Christ. You see the difference? Unity is the test of love. It is the real self-conscious work of being reconciled to people because we're being renewed, because the instrument of encouragement in our life that encourages us by saying you are reconciled to God also does the real work of reconciling us to people who in our natural flesh, in our, in our, in, in our state of condition that we are in without renewal, in our own life that we would not have anything to do with. I trust the Lord will help us with these things. Let's pray.